This is a Saddleback Church podcast. What does it mean to be human? This question is, at its root, something that we all knowingly or unknowingly wrestle with in the course of our lives. Are people just a collections of matter worth nothing more than the dust that they were made of? Are people just to be used to better the powerful, nothing more than the energy they can output to pursue an end goal? Or is there something more there, something founded in purpose, identity, and significance? My guest today is Dr. Carmen Joy Imes, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University and author of the new book, Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. These questions about humanity are the driving force behind her new book as she explores what Genesis, the biblical wisdom literature, and the New Testament say about creation and what it means to be made in God's image. Today's episode dives into this question of humanity and being made in God's image, a question that impacts every single person in the world. My name is Jason Wheeland, and this is A Doable Discipleship, a Saddleback Church podcast, part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. Now, my conversation with Dr. Carmen Joy Imes. Dr. Imes, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So we're talking about your new book, Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. And you described your book as an exploration of what it means to be human, which which I love. It's something, I mean, it kind of speaks to all, you know, 8 billion of us in the world, which is great. So, so it, Are we up to 8 billion now? No, I looked the other day and it said that we are like... V- nearing oh, that point, my goodness. which is, which That's is so many people. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Uh, so in talking about this question of humanity, it may sound unnecessary to ask, but I think it's worth still asking mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, I'd love for, I'd love to hear you describe why it's important for people to think through and process for themselves what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. I think that if we don't, then we're likely to be driven by desires, driven by fears, uh, susceptible to lies about who we are and why we're here that have the potential of distorting our true identity and why, you know, what, what, what we're supposed to be doing in the world. And I think that as we press into this question about what does it mean to be human, we'll find resources to process and to respond to different changes and challenges in the world around us. So I think of just one example, artificial intelligence is something a lot of people are thinking about right now. And some of the fear around artificial intelligence is, are are computers going to pass up humans Mm. in intelligence or in usefulness? Are we going to be replaced? And so I think this is a really great time for us to turn back to the scriptures and make sure we're clear on what does it mean to be human so that we can then 
engage with the questions around AI more responsibly, more uh, more thoughtfully. Well, I think I think that's important, and it goes back to kind of this root idea that if you don't think about and come to conclusions for yourself, then you're going to let others put yep. their ideas upon you, and, yep. and you're just going to you know maybe go with what somebody else thinks. So it might not be yes. truthful, right? Yes. And what other people want to feed you is something that will enhance themselves in some way. So, you know, companies are selling products that they think yeah. you want to need. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, they need you to want. And so um, there are lots of voices that are out there telling us who we are, but they're telling us who we are often from selfish or exploitative perspectives. Yeah. So so what we're talking about and what you talk about in your book is this idea that humanity is so much more than just about being used for something and that God has right. called us into something more, that he made us for a purpose greater than just, you know, to to reap the the um stuff of this earth to live mm -hmm. and then to <laughs> one day die. And yeah. in, in doing yeah. so, try to make it as fun as you can. Or, or if you're looking at it from what other people may say, you know, and being exploited to be used for their own purposes mm -hmm. while right. you're here and then right. you ultimately die. And so, yeah. but, but, but what we're saying and what God offers is so much more. And so that's where it's mm -hmm. important to mm -hmm. have that conversation about what yeah. humanity truly is because that yeah. just is everything about you. Yeah. yeah, I didn't I didn't write about this in particular in my book, Jason, but I spend most mornings in the book of Exodus oh, because okay. I'm working on a commentary, a Bible commentary on Exodus. And I I I think Pharaoh gives us a fantastic illustration of what happens when you don't ground human identity and purpose in what God says, mm. but you ground it in you know, usefulness. So Pharaoh exploits the labor of the Hebrews for his own ends. He's having them build storage cities, which is probably, scholars tell us that it's it's probably that they're building warehouses, like great big Amazon warehouses, oh. full of all of the things that would be needed to sacrifice and offer offerings to Pharaoh after he dies oh, wow. because they believed that Pharaoh would be deified. And so he needed a whole temple establishment for his own worship. Mm. So if that's true, if that's what they're actually building, we have the Hebrews being uh, being co-opted for this project of massive self-aggrandizement uh. by Pharaoh. And Yahweh steps in and says, no, that is not what humans are for. Mm. My people are not to, I didn't create these people to make you look better. Yeah. We're, you know, we're created to reflect glory to the God who made us. And so Pharaoh, Pharaoh's approach to humans is to use them for his own purposes, which is exactly what the gods that Pharaoh worships think about humans. Like the, the ancient Near Eastern myths that say, what are how why were humans created and what are we supposed to do we're supposed to do the hard labor to make life easier for the gods mm. that's exactly what pharaoh is having the hebrews do yeah. he he has become like the gods he worships and so for us to come back to scripture and say what does our god say about humanity and get this very different picture is i think transformative for human society that's a fascinating image and 
I'm, first of all, I'm really happy to hear that you are working on a commentary on Exodus. We recently did a fun uh, book of the Bible draft episode of the podcast, and Exodus mm-hmm. was one of the first ones taken, uh, which was for many good reasons. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's. I think it's the best. <laughs> I love it. So, and, and this ties in really well with uh, with one of the areas I wanted to go in talking about the book, because you make this connection between vocation and creation and, mm-hmm. and this idea of work and, and what we are called to to do and yeah. it, it, and that fits in perfectly with what you were saying about how pharaoh just saw work saw labor saw means mm-hmm. to an end but what we see from scripture from what yahweh says for, for and how god calls us is to something different so can you explain this connection then for listeners, between creation and vocation. And where do you think we tend to go wrong in embracing Mm. this connection? Sure. So we first meet humans in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God determines to make humanity as his image. And then he right away defines this, defines, uh, well, he right away tells us what images are to do. So I think the, the the word image or the concept of being the image of God is defined with help from ancient Near Eastern context and understanding what that word means. The word image is in Hebrew is tselem, which is a concrete three-dimensional physical object that is representative of a deity or a king. Mm. And so God creates humans as his three-dimensional representatives on earth. But then he tells us right away what we are to do. So that's our identity. What do we do? We are to rule over creation. Mm -hmm. And so rulership is intrinsic to our identity as God's image. But the rulership that God has appointed us to is not Mm self-centered. We're not like little pharaohs trying to build our own empires. It's not exploitative. We're not supposed to look at those around us as as accessories to our own self fulfillment or our own kind of quest for self-discovery or ascendancy it's and it's not hierarchical this is the thing that Mm. that really grabbed me as i was working on the book that when god creates humans he creates us male and female Mm. as his image and we're both told to rule over creation which tells me that every human being is the image of god without exception and that all of us have been given a shared task to rule over creation. And so that rulership must be then benevolent stewardship. We're supposed to maintain the order that God has brought to creation, maintain space for flourishing of humans and animals and plants. Um, creation care is a is a big part of that. It's not we're not limited to creation care, but that's where it starts. Yeah, I think that's uh, it, it's something that if we really, got hold of if we really went back to the root of what this is uh, of what god had had set before adam and eve and not just for them but for everybody else who came after yeah it's it's it really puts that value on people it's really it's looks at not not just the idea of image but that idea of calling and vocation Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. in partnership with god as god is saying i i made all of this and I mm-hmm. am giving this to you to rule over. And so there's stewardship elements there. There mm-hmm. is a purpose and calling elements yeah. there. And the yeah. idea that it wasn't just for Adam, it wasn't just for 
Adam and Eve, it was for all of us. So mm -hmm. what that says about each and every person that has been made, because yeah. God didn't put stipulations on nope. that. <laughs> it was just No, it's calling. not like if you're of a certain height, you're exactly. the image of God. <laughs> exactly. Or if you're of a certain intelligence, you are the image of God. Or if you're of a certain race, you are the image of God. No, every human being is the image of God, short or tall, black, brown or white, yeah. male or female, abled or disabled. We are all the image of God. And it's not, it, you You mentioned, Jason, the, the dignity or yeah. value that we have. And I think, wow, what would happen in our world if every human being knew deep down inside how much God values them, that we wouldn't be on this lifelong quest to prove that we are valuable yeah. by accomplishing certain things or by besting other people, by showing we are smarter or faster or stronger or whatever. Yeah. We, we all have ways that we try to prove ourselves. What if we just actually knew that from the, from the get-go, we are all of equal value? Well, and I think it really comes into play on a society that feels more and more polarized and separate from each other. And when you look and 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 what can so often, unfortunately, happen is looking at people from different cultures or different religions, different backgrounds, and yeah. seeing either this idea of less than or different than. Yeah. And what this is saying is, no, everybody, everybody is made in the image of everybody. Yes. And I and I just love that rooting idea, that idea yes. of going back to this 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 even keel this even land spot of just saying, Hey, anybody that you look at is you can be in a room with any other individual in the world and yep. you are both image bearers, both made in God's image, both yep. with the you know, both beloved and both you yep. know, just in both given the as same long as they have a human body they yeah. <laughs> are the image of god and it doesn't matter young or old uh, it's and i think this is so transformative because not only does it change our self-concept mm. you know a lot of people teeter on one end or the other either either being down on themselves or yeah. wondering if they're worthless or they're just so <laughs> full of pride yeah. and want to prove to everybody that they're better than everybody else and this is like this great leveler of in our own self-concept, but it at the same time teaches us about everybody else around us, that that everyone is a value. So it transforms community mm -hmm. and our interactions with others. I, I love it. And I could talk about that part all day, but I, I do want to dive into different elements of the book because you structure mm -hmm. your book into three parts, which I found personally very useful. <laughs> in, in part one, it looks at the first quarter of Genesis. And I love mm -hmm. that. I think it goes through chapter 12 or chapter 11. Is, is that Chapter right? 11. Chapter yep. 11, right? And it dives into this exploration of the creation account. So as you mm -hmm. were writing the book, and I'm sure it being an Old Testament scholar that you have studied, the, you know, this book of Genesis, all your, you know, at, at least a, a large portion of your life, Yes. What stood out to you about Genesis that maybe you hadn't thought about before, or maybe you saw it in an entirely new light? Yeah, there were there were a number of things, and and there have even been things I've discovered after the book went to press. I <laughs> thought, like, how could I not wait. see that? It's right there. So this is life. Uh, this is job security, life security. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll always be learning. But one of the things that really stood out to me was the power dynamics in mm. in the stories of the first eleven chapters. So, so I already mentioned both male and female are the image of God, and both told to rule in Genesis one. A lot of people who are arguing for hierarchy between the sexes 
point back to the creation story and they seem to see it there. But by my reading, we don't have any hierarchy until Genesis 3. Mm. And that's the result of the fall. That's the result of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God's command. That's when it God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Mm-hmm. Where there's this joss, joss, jostling, what's jockeying, that's yeah, the sure. word, jockeying <laughs> for position, yeah. um, where they're both trying to master each other. And I, I find it so sad mm-hmm. that for much of the history of the church, we have used that as our paradigm that we've used the hierarchy as a paradigm when it's a result of the fall not Mm. part of god's good uh intentions i I realize these are controversial things to talk (laughs) about um these days but i i think i just think that's one of the things that stood out to me Mm. um the the difference between a genesis one and two vision of collaboration and partnership versus the hierarchy in genesis three and then we see it come up again in genesis 11 Mm where um you know people are familiar with the tower of babel story but as i dove into this more deeply i i discovered this layer of p- potential exploitation there's a lot of actual verbal links between genesis 11 and the pharaoh story okay. in exodus and so it, it made because i'm working on exodus i think i noticed them more than i had before sure. But it it's very suspicious to me that the chapter begins by saying that the whole world had one language mm. and a common speech. Because in the previous chapter, chapter 10, we have a table of nations in which we're told multiple times that they all spoke their own languages. Mm. So then to go to the yeah. story and say, well, there was only one language. And to have God at the end of the chapter scatter the people and scramble the languages so that they couldn't communicate. And, and that's often been taken as a punishment that mm-hmm. that the reason we have so many languages is, we, is because people screwed up yeah. at battle. But I, I think actually God is putting the world back on track. He's putting his plans back in place. His goal is for us to spread out. He said to Adam and Eve, fill the earth and subdue it. Don't, yeah. don't gather all in one place and try to build an empire. Spread out. If we are the three-dimensional representatives of God, then he wants us all the places. He wants us everywhere to represent his rule. And so God puts things back on track by scattering the people and scrambling their languages, restores the kind of flourishing diversity that Mm. he wants to see. And we we get more glimpses of that at the day of Pentecost Mm -hmm. when the gospel is going out in all these different languages. And there's many uh, connections between the table of nations in Genesis 10 and Acts 2, the the nations that are gathered there, uh, the different language groups represented. And then Revelation 7, 9, where where every tribe, tongue, and nation is gathered around the throne worshiping. God's goal is apparently not uniformity. Mm. His goal is apparently not that we all speak one language. And so um, that's something that stood out to me that I don't think I had fully appreciated before. Well, I think it's fascinating to put that idea of diversity in language, in, a diversity in culture, in races and all that stuff, and even compare it to, you know, how God made the animals and the insects and all mm-hmm. that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It's that idea of, we we have a pretty clear picture, it seems, that that, that God wasn't about uniformity in that area. Yes, Is yes. that he values just this idea of of, of being diverse and embracing that and really and seeing that there's so much enrichment for yes. ours for our lives when we see the creativity of God in that yes and 
even I, I would imagine <laughs> that God knew all along that it would require us having to having to intentionally pull ourselves together and to seek unity while not uniformity mm-hmm. and knowing that there would be struggle in that, that there would be hardship mm-hmm. in that, but it's worth the effort. Yes. Yes. It is worth the effort. We are better together. Yeah. It, we're, it, it's, we're better having diverse voices around the table in the room where decisions are being yeah. made. We're better tackling a project. My, my son and I were just having this conversation this week. Like, why does it matter when you fill out a college application that you should say what race you are? Uh-huh. You know, so we're having a conversation about diversity in in education and sure. why we're all better off when there are lots of people around who don't look like us mm-hmm. because they've they've come to this task from another background that's different than ours, another cultural perspective, another even class differences, a, a different kind of upbringing, bringing a different kind of uh, religious background or, or in a Christian school, a different denominational background. And then when we come to tackle a problem, we're not all looking at it the same way. We can see it from different sides and we can learn from each other and we can discover, oh, I've been reading this my whole life or I've been thinking about this my whole life and I never saw that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, I think I I I think that's it, it's such a valuable and important part of what it means to be not just a Christian but a human to right. to have that wide array, you know, or you know, if you want to think in terms of artistry, right? That grand mm-hmm tapestry of all yeah. these different threads and yeah. God can see the big picture of how beautiful it all looks. And he yeah, wants yeah. us to see that too. Yes. And, and Jason, I think sometimes Christians are worried that this is a worldly agenda, yeah. that somehow a quest for diversity yeah. is being put on us by somebody who's arguing for political correctness or sure. um, for quotas or for whatever. And I think we have got to get that out of our head come back to scripture, not to say that there's never an agenda out there that that might be problematic, but to come back to scripture and see that from the pages of scripture itself, there's an invitation to celebrate diverse cultures and languages and to collaborate with one another in the work that God has given us as a, a, as a human, uh, a collective humanity to do. Yeah. It's not my job or your job, it's our job. And and that's so clear to me from scripture. Yeah, we have uh, at, at, at our church, we're about to do a series called Rediscovering the Lost Art of Friendship. And we're going to mm. run a limited a podcast series with that. I'll talk to I'll talk more on this podcast about that next week's episode. But to give a little sneak peek, the third week of that series is about enrich, embracing um, differences and, yes. and, and intentionally seeking out um diverse groups of friends. And on that mm-hmm. podcast episode, we got we get to talk with Derwin Gray about that. So just a little Excellent. sneak peek Excellent. about what's coming up. <laughs> um, I wanted to address part two of your book because it looks at the wisdom literature from the Bible. Yes. And I found that a really interesting add to what you were doing through this survey in talking about mm. being God's image. So why did you choose to include this section on the wisdom literature? And then what did you learn from it in in terms of this lens of creation and vocation. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Great question and very perceptive. Um, <laughs> so for anyone who's listening, who isn't sure what we mean by wisdom literature, this sure. would be the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Song of Songs, which are traditionally known as wisdom literature, not because the rest of the Bible is not wise, but just <laughs> yeah. because th- this particular collection of books has a focus on the cultivation of uh, of virtue and of wisdom, but they're different from other Old Testament books because they're not covenantally driven. They're, we don't have, in these books, we don't have a lot of uh, reflection on the history of Israel or God's covenant with Israel, the law that they're supposed to obey. Um, instead, it's it seems to be a broader look at what does it mean to be human in God's world without even the, the benefit of direct divine revelation how do we process our experience of the world and what can we learn from living well in it? And so I decided to include it because in part, because my first book for InterVarsity Press is um, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. And it's very covenantally driven. I'm tracing the theme of covenant through the Bible. And so I didn't talk about those books because those yeah. books don't talk about the covenant. Yeah. And so this time I wanted to kind of round out the picture, because covenant's not the only thing going on in the Bible, creation is another big theme. Mm. And so I felt like this was a way to get a, to, to start a conversation with these books. And to, to ask the broader question, what does it mean to be human based on these books' lenses on the world? So it's a little bit broader question than the question of what does it mean to be the image of God? Mm-hmm. That's a little narrower, but I just felt like there was space for wrestling with suffering and sexuality and uh, how do we how do we live well in terms of money and business and family relationships and all the things Proverbs talks about. So yeah, that's that's why I included it. Yeah. And I think when we read these books well, they help us to take ourselves less seriously. Mm. Sometimes we get really caught up in a quest for success or a quest for answers or a quest for perfection that just isn't realistic. Yeah. Uh, one example, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, I think is fantastic. <laughs> so I have a couple of sections on that. It's one on of my that. favorites, yeah. Mm, yeah, mm. I, I love ta- thinking about that book because a lot of times Christians don't know what to do with it. Mm. It seems so pessimistic, meaningless, meaningless. <laughs> Everything is utterly meaningless. It's like, really? Yeah. Is that in the Bible? <laughs> so I, I first talk about why I wouldn't translate the word, the Hebrew word as meaningless. Mm. I don't think the book is saying that everything's meaningless, but rather that the meaning of life is hard to grasp. Mm. That life is elusive. It slips through our fingers. We have moments of pleasure, moments of success, but we can't stay there. And so the the author of Ecclesiastes is wrestling with that and trying to figure out how do I I live well in the world when I can't have success all the time? Mm -hmm. And so I think Ecclesiastes is a really good message for people in Southern California who are driven by career success. Uh, It's a great sort of uh reminder to step back not put ourselves at the center of everything not constantly be reaching for what we don't have yet mm-hmm. but enjoying the journey but another book that i talk about is job yeah and i think something that is is has been emerging in my thinking as i think about job partly with the help of a book by a friend of mine um, Michael Rhodes just wrote a book called uh, Just Discipleship, yeah. 
also with InterVarsity Press. Yeah, it's a fantastic that. book. And he talks about how Job is wrestling all through the book about why did God allow this suffering when I'm innocent? Mm. And God never actually answers that question for Job. Mm -hmm. But when he takes him on a tour of the universe, it has the effect of decentering Job, mm -hmm. where Job comes out at the other side thinking less about himself and more about others. At the beginning of the book, he has servants. At the end of the book, when God restores all of his wealth, he doesn't. Yeah. He has sons and daughters and flocks and herds, and it doesn't say he has servants. Has he now released his slaves? Mm. You know, is he now, is he thinking more generously? At the beginning of the book, he has sons and daughters, but at the end of the book, his daughters get an inheritance alongside his sons. And so there's there's just some really interesting shifts in Job as he discovers, oh, it's not all about me. Mm. Therefore, I don't, I'm not in a position to be able to understand and appreciate all of God's ways. And I think that is a really important message in a world where we are constantly placing ourselves at the center. I think what I love, too, about the wisdom literature, and especially when we're looking at it through the lens of creation, is the call to being humble and being humbled by the wisdom literature. I yeah. love that idea that it is, you know, if we think through it, that God knew we would need these reminders through Proverbs, mm -hmm. that we would mm -hmm. need these reminders, these calls to basically, you know, not just do our own way to fight against the, you know, our fallen instincts. Mm -hmm. And it puts a, in, as we, as we go back to that idea that, that we're all made in God's image and we're all on the same a playing field in that sense yeah. is that reminder that, you know, uh, that's speaking to me right now because God, you know, and God knows that this is something that I might struggle with, but it's also something that the highest of high person might struggle with or the lowest of low person might struggle with. Yep. And so yep. we all need these reminders in humility that is seen through the wisdom literature. And I just love that yep. element of it too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the third then part of the book focuses on Jesus and the New Testament. So I want to look specifically at the idea that you present of the beloved uh, community. And we've yeah. been talking about that idea a lot on this podcast lately, and I think it's for a reason, mm -hmm. this call back into community, mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. just the value and the importance of living in community. So can yeah. you talk about how this topic of creation and being God's image drives, or at least I should say should drive us mm -hmm. towards this idea of living in community. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many ways that it does. I'm thinking all the way back to Genesis when God says, let us make humankind mm -hmm. as our image. He, there's, there's a sense of collaboration, even in God's announcement that this is what he wants to do. And then he makes male and female and gives us a task, a shared task. So from the very beginning, this is not all about me, but it's about us mm -hmm. doing something together. Uh, and so we can trace that through into the New Testament. And we find that um, that Jesus calls 12 disciples to follow him. He, you know, it, it's not a self-actualization model in which he meets one-on-one -on -one with people and helps them fulfill their dreams. He calls them into community with one another, and he calls together a community of very different people <laughs> who are from the wrong you know, sorts of crowds, yeah. like he he throws together tax collectors and fishermen and, and a zealot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he the people he brings together 
are not the natural are not a natural social grouping. Yeah. And yet he calls them to a shared task. And I think if we truly embrace what the scriptures say about every human being as the image of God, and that that implies our vocation to rule the earth and to to represent the presence of God, then we by definition need to start to work well with everyone around us. We need to to lean into that kind of collaboration. And there are so many ways in the history of humanity where community has broken down, Mm. where we've exploited one another or sidelined and marginalized one another, where we've mistrusted one another. Uh, And so we have a lot of work to do. And a lot of the New Testament is is revolving around this idea. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, is letting them know the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. You're being built together into one new man. Like together you, uh, y- together you are the dwelling place of the spirit, and so yeah, that's something I think we could think a lot about. What is the is the importance of the word beloved when you say beloved community? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. I think, in two senses. First of all a recognition that that we are loved by God mm-hmm. that we are God's beloved and if we if we truly understand I'm the image of God he loves me I'm part of his royal family then that predisposes me to be able to extend that love to others who are also God's beloved yeah. and so then together we so there's a horizontal dimension to the belovedness when we come to treasure those around us as fellow images of God and and then work together on the task God's given us. Yeah, that word can have so much power for people. It can be it can be this word that you maybe from your background, from your issues with family of origin or whatever, mm-hmm. this word beloved can have so much power and it can speak yeah. to so much freedom in your life. I, I remember we had um Hosanna Wong on this podcast a few um, weeks ago, and she was talking about this, I I have a new name idea. And mm-hmm. one of those names <laughs> that's offered up through that spoken word piece is beloved. And so many people cling to that as their word that they you mm. know, need spoken over them, spoken into their life. Yeah. And when, but when we tie that with community, I think there's, it can be so much power in that because it's not just, it's not just you, I am beloved, but it's we our beloved. Yes. And it yes. becomes being able to see everybody in this community with that name, with that with that idea yes. spoken over them. And yeah. it can it can just create those tighter bonds. It can break down yeah. animosity. You can, yep. you know, more easily forgive and have grace and repentance yep. Yep. and confession and all of that, yep. all of these great things that we're told to live out in the mm-hmm. Bible, specific, especially seen through the New Testament, all these things mm-hmm. that we're called to be as the church can more easily take root, take shape when we enter this idea of a beloved a community. Yeah. I think that's so special. Yeah. I mean, in contrast to what came to mind was Joseph and mm-hmm. his coat of many colors. <laughs> so he was the beloved of his father, yeah. but the others were not. Yeah. And it created great animosity between Joseph and his brothers. And he walked around very unwisely telling his brothers his dreams about them all bowing down <laughs> to him. You know, there's the, uh, there's this hierarchy. 
And in contrast to that, at the at the table of Christ, we all sit on a, on equal, like we, we're all equal around the table. I tell a story in the book about the first time I was asked to serve communion, mm. and it was at my previous institution. We had a chapel to kick off the year, and I, as a woman, had been in lots of churches where women didn't do these things, but sure. at, at this school, they asked me to be part of serving communion, and I said I would I would love to. And so I stood up at the front with my basket of crackers, <laughs> and it the the style was everyone in the section that I was standing in front of would file forward, and they would take a, the cup, and they would take the bread, and we would say to them, this is the body of Christ given for you. Mm. And it it that experience wrecked me because there were people in that section that I didn't like. Mm. There were students, there was a student who had just plagiarized an assignment in my class oh. and then bald face lied about it to me when I asked her about yeah. the assignment. And and had been we had invited her over for dinner to our house and she had bragged about the assignment at our house, at mm. my dinner table, when I knew she had plagiarized, like, uh. it, and she was in that section. And there was a, there was a staff member who, who was always scowly, who mm. always scowled at me. And, and I had to say to each one, the body of Christ given for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it wrecked me because I realized if it was my body, I wouldn't give it to you. Like, <laughs> like if I was the yeah. one deciding who's in and who's out, sure. you would not have made the cut. Mm. You would have been out there. Out, you would have been outside. I would have shown you the door and Christ hasn't. And if I'm his daughter, then it's my responsibility to extend the same grace to others that he's extended to me. Mm. If Jesus has said, you're welcome here, then who am I to say you're not? And and there were there were other people in that section um, that came by that I knew of extreme mental health challenges, uh, students whose parents were going through messy divorces, students with chronic health conditions, and to to look each one in the eye and say the body of Christ given for you was so meaningful, and it helped me begin to see like oh this is a transformative thing we do here. Mm. In church, when we're in church and we take communion together, it is not just about me and Jesus having a nice little moment. Yeah. It's about us becoming a community where we're all recipients of the grace of God. That's yeah. amazing. That is amazing. So to start looking at wrapping up our conversation, what are some steps that we can start taking today to live more of the life that we are called to live. I love how you say in your book that we're not just created to be saved and be in mm -hmm. heaven, but we are made to live this John 10, 10, this abundant life now. Mm. So what are some steps that people, or some even just baby steps, some things that mm -hmm. people can start doing to live out this, this idea of what it really means to be God's image in the world? Mm. What comes to mind is is a way of praying, hmm. and this is maybe something that people can jot down and or put on their phone so they see it yeah. first thing in the morning. But to begin to pray that God would give you eyes to see yourself as he sees you mm -hmm. and to see others as he sees them. And that, that will begin to energize the kinds of collaboration and community that we were born for. Hmm. 
But then I would follow that up with a prayer that God would give us eyes to see what is ours to do. Mm. I think sometimes what I've observed is people hang back when they see problems in the world, large or very small. They hang back because they don't think it's their job to fix them. Yeah. They Nobody asked them to do it or they, they don't want to step on anybody's toes. Or I've seen this so many times in a group situation where like you're all in a room ready, getting ready to listen to a speaker and there's really bright sun coming through the side window and blinding the speaker or some of the people in the audience. And everybody just sits there because they're, they're not on facilities. They don't, they don't, that's not their job. And I think every one of us could hop up and pull the shades and fix the problem. So, so that's an example of a Mm. very tiny thing. Um, But obviously there are lots of problems in the world. We can't fix, we can't do all the things. So begin to pray, Lord, help me to have eyes to see what is mine to do, what is ours to do, what are you calling me to be part of, whether that's picking up trash or starting a recycling program in your institution, in your church, um, whether that's uh, doing something in your, starting a neighborhood watch in your community, like, you know, whatever, disaster preparedness for the next hurricane earthquake day (laughs) (laughs) that happens in Southern (laughs) California. Um, And then, and then I think I would close with the prayer of indifference. I, I just learned this prayer from a friend of mine, Kat Armstrong. She posted about it on Twitter or whatever we're calling it. Yeah. Now. Yeah. The artist formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> the, yes. The formerly, the place formerly known as Twitter. I read this prayer and it's just, I think, so pertinent. And she said, Lord, make me indifferent to anything that is outside of your will. So as we're looking at all the things, there are so many good things we can do in the world. And God has called us to do good work, not not so that we can become something we're not, but because we already are his image and he's invited us into a, a participatory role in the world. So just praying that God would give us eyes to see what's ours to do and that we would be indifferent to everything else, mm. that we would be able to leave aside the things that would distract us from the work he's given us to do. And I I guess I'd start there with the, with those prayers and then just watch what God begins to show you. Mm. Well, friends, the book is being God's image. Why creation still matters. We'll put the link to that in the show notes, as well as the link to Dr. Imes's first book, bearing God's name. And um, and we can all be looking forward to her Exodus commentary, which which do you have a? <laughs> I, it sounds like you're working on it now. You don't have a date for that yet, or? <laughs> no, I'm I'm hoping 2026. Okay, yeah, it, I it's mean, a ways down the road. Well, it's a beast of a project, and so I'm. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds really exciting, though. Thank I you. I hit so- the 40 percent mark this morning, hey! and I've been working on it for four years. <laughs> so I have to significant like my momentum is better now, but it it's going to still take a while. It's a long book. It is a labor of love, undoubtedly. It is. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Yeah. I, it's a labor of love, but it's also a labor that I love. Yes, <laughs> I really love working on Exodus every day. I learn things that I just think, oh, this is so cool. Oh, that's great. Well, if if this podcast is still going in 2026, we're six years in now. If we're eight years in by that point, <laughs> we'll have you back on talk about Exodus. Dr. Imes, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Jason, for having me. Now, let's look at some next steps out of this episode. 
I'm grateful to Dr. Imza. She gave some great next steps at the end of our conversation. But first, check out Dr. Imza's books, Being God's Image and Bearing God's Name. She partnered with the Bible Project, so there are a number of great resources from them included in Being God's Image, as well as some great small group discussion questions. The links for these books, both you can find in the show notes. Second, I'll remind you of the three ways to pray that Dr. Imes mentioned. First, ask God for eyes to see yourself the way he sees you, and ask God for eyes to see others the way he sees them. Second, ask God for eyes to see what is ours to do, right? Ways to serve others. She mentioned the story of the speaker who was having the light glaring in his eyes and nobody getting up to go and close the blinds, right? So what is a way that you can be serving others? Third, ask God for indifference on what is not yours to do, to not get distracted by the many other things of life, but instead to be able to have that vision, have that clear sight from God on what he is calling you to do. The third next step I want to mention is that Dr. Imes has a new e-course available on this very topic that we talked about today through Seminary Now. The link to this e-course is in the show notes as well. Friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode, this conversation with Dr. Imes. As I mentioned, next week's episode, we we are going to introduce a limited uh, special podcast series that is going to be on a different feed. So I'm going to introduce that to you next week. It's called Rediscovering the Lost Art of Friendship. I'm excited for that series, and we'll uh, play the first episode of it next week and show you how you can find the rest of that special podcast series as well. So friends, this has been... A Doable Discipleship, Saddleback Church Podcast. We'll be back with you again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes. And go to saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question might just inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Jason Whelan, and I hope you'll join us again next week.